it's good to see everybody with us this morning, holiday weekend. I know it's sometimes tough to get us to church. Ironically, today's sermon has to do with going to church, so this is uh, going to be fantastic. Uh, if you're here as a visitor, again, just a warm welcome to you. Uh, we, we preach the Bible uh, here. Typically, we work through books of the Bible. Right now, we are in uh, a series uh, through the book of Psalms. We're just looking at a selection of Psalms, and so if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and, and open to Psalms. If you don't know where that is in your Bible, it's pretty much in the middle, so you've got a good shot of landing in the middle if you just crack it open. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the words projected for you, but uh, we love to give away free Bibles, so if that's something you'd like to have, we have Bibles on the table. We'd love for you to take one of those uh, this morning. Today we're going to be looking at Psalm 122, uh, but as you're flipping there and before we read it, uh, I'll give you a little insight into the life of a pastor. Oftentimes uh, people ask me what exactly it is I do, um, and you know that answer varies from week to week, but one of the things that I do is dodge odd conversations with people. Uh, when people find out I'm a pastor, it always changes the dynamic of the relationship. I, I don't know why. I would try to be normal, but you know, it's there's some stigma there that you, now you're dealing with a pastor. So all cussing has ceased, and you know, like it's like it's boring. But anyway, part of my job is is dodging odd conversations, and a lot of times. Uh, when I get into, whether it's a casual conversation or somebody that I know well, and they find out I'm a pastor, um, for some reason they begin uh, telling me uh, reasons they, they haven't been at church. Like, not even our church. Like, it's like confession time. Like, all the various reasons for their spotty church attendance over the years, right? And so, like, I mean, you hear, like, the sophisticated answers, like how, you know, institutionalized and organized religion has really, really been wrong for them. And so there's, like, kind of those sophisticated arguments. And then there's, of course, just the, the, the garden variety of, you know, life has just got busy and we've got kids and activities and, and, and those kinds of, of answers. And then there's, you know, the, the, the ever so popular Sundays, this is the one day that we can just be at home and stay in our pajamas and rest and sleep and all of those things. And so... So as a pastor, I hear those things about why people don't go to church, and, and I extend grace, and I'm never like, oh, God, you just got to get over that. But, but, but there's something about going to church and the reasons we don't do it that this psalm actually addresses. Um, see, Psalm 122, uh, as we read it, is actually the song of a person who's excited to go to church. Uh, it's the song of King David, actually. Um, there's, uh, out of the Psalms of Ascent, we're looking at these 15 Psalms. Only, um, I believe, four of them, uh, actually five of them have authors ascribed to them, four of which are David. And so David, King David, famous King David, if you know anything about the Bible and King David, this is that David, wrote this song. And it's, it's, uh, it's got this exuberant joy about actually going to worship the Lord. And so that's, that's the song today. So let's read this morning Psalm 122 from the Old Testament. This is the word of the Lord. A song of ascents of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones for, ju for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. 
May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, let's ask him to bless the preaching of it. Father, we still have those songs um, drumming in our ears. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Lord, we are now gazing upon the written words of your holy scriptures that have been breathed out and kept and preserved by you so that we could hear them today. Lord, help us not to take that lightly, but also help us to understand your scriptures. Because unless you help us, Lord, they'll make no sense to us. So Lord, help us now. Meet with us. Speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, several years back, Heather and I lived in the Phoenix, Arizona area. We went to do some college there. And I love the Phoenix area because they've got a lot of food options there, big, big food people. And one of, one of our spots, really one of my spots, was this little, little spot over in Tempe, which is near the, the campus there. And it's, an, it's all-you-can-eat sushi. All-you-can-eat all sushi. You heard me right. And uh, this was before Heather ever dabbled in sushi. So she would go there and just watch me consume obscene amounts of raw fish. Like, it, was, it, was, it kind of got ugly at some points. But there was one particular incident. I, th- I think it was the first time we went there. I was just so enamored by the idea that I could literally eat as much sushi as I wanted for this, this one price fits all that I just got overwhelmed. You know, everything I saw... I had to have, and you know, everything that would walk by, not, not the fish, the, you know, with, the, with the servers, everything that would walk by, I'd be like, I want some of that. And it just kind of got out of control. And there was one rule that this restaurant had, and the rule was you had to eat everything you ordered. And um, I, I, when you first get in there, you're like, sure, no problem. But by the end of that, that rule is uh, it's, a, it's a game changer a bit. Um, now this story, this is a bit of vulnerability and confession time for me. This is, this is a moment of shame in my life, but here goes nothing. Um, I ordered too much. I could not handle what I ordered. I, I saw everything I wanted and I ordered it, and we got down to it, and I simply couldn't, couldn't finish it. And, and I'm a very frugal man. If you don't finish your food, you pay for all of it. That's the rule. And so we get down to the end of it, and I've got two pieces left, and, and I can't eat them. I'm, t- I'm done. And Heather looks at me, and she's like, well, you, you have to eat them. <laughs> like, I'm not eating them, and I know you're not going to pay for all this. You have to eat them. So long story short, we put them in her purse, and we left. Um, okay? All right? So there's the confession. We, we put them in her purse. We left. That's why I love my wife. She's, she's committed like that. But... But I, I, I tell you this story of shame, really, um, because, uh, you know, worship, the worship of God was always meant to be, in some ways, like an all-you-can-eat sushi place. It, it was always intended to give you more than you could actually handle. It was, it, it was always designed for you to leave there really overwhelmed by what you were offered. 
See, I think that a lot of times we, and, and I've heard this analogy, I don't know if maybe you even used it, maybe you used it this morning, but this analogy that, that church, what we do on Sunday mornings when we gather as God's people to sing and to worship and, and to do all these things, is like a gas station, right? You're empty after a long week and you come into church and you get filled up and then you go back out into the week and you run through the tank of gas and then you come back and you fill back up, right? Maybe you've heard that analogy, that metaphor, maybe you've used it. Um, I think it's really lacking and I think this psalm is gonna really tap into something different that worship ought to be for us. Here's the big idea I'm trying to communicate to us today is that worship was never designed to fully satisfy you, but it was always intended to leave you wanting more. Never designed to fully fill your tank and leave you there. It was always designed to leave you wanting more. See, what we, what we believe about the God of the Bible is that he has revealed himself, as our confession of faith has stated it in, in sections of, of dealing with who God is, that he is infinite, and he's eternal, and he's unchangeable. Meaning, there is no ending of God in his goodness, power, wisdom, justice, and might. And so a God like that, who's worshipped, will never be exhausted. Like we will never exhaust our enjoyment of him. So the nature of worship is to leave you wanting more and more of that. As we walk through this psalm today, there's some questions that I want playing through your mind as we look at some of this text and what David is telling us. Uh, questions like why, why worship? Why am I here? Why did I carve out my Sunday morning for this? Why? Um, and, and what function does this play? Is there any practical, kind of pragmatic things that this does to me internally and even externally? The, what, what function does worship play in my life? And then even questions, I think this psalm is going to address questions like, well, what happens when our emotions aren't there? In other words, what happens when you just don't feel like going to church? You don't feel like worshiping God. Or, or maybe, maybe the case is you've never really felt that way. You've never had those types of affections. What do we do then? What's the psalm telling us? I think the, the psalm's going to show us a few things, and, and these are the, the main things I want to kind of hook the, hang, the, the sermon on today. I want us to look at three things. I want us to look how worship structures our lives. I want us to look at how worship strengthens our unity. And then lastly, I want us to look at how worship shapes our desires. Okay? So first, let's look at how worship structures our lives. Um, I, love, I love the Bible. Uh, I kind of have to. I preach the Bible. It's my job. But I, I love the Bible because a lot of times what the Bible will do is gives us pictures to, to really color and paint what it is we believe. In other words, like you and I, some of us are visual learners, right? We, we learn through seeing things or through metaphors and those kinds of things. Well, well, this psalm gives us really some pictures to, to kind of color the, the song for us. Uh, the pictures are two. It gives us a picture of a house and it gives us a picture of a city, okay? So the house 
in this psalm is kind of the frame of the psalm. So when you're thinking about a picture, the frame is the house, and the house is what we know as the church. And so the the gathering of God's people, the house of the Lord, is the frame. And then the canvas, the painting in, on, the, on, the, on the actual canvas is the city. And the city gives us the picture of what it means to be the people of God in the city of God. And so in Psalm 122, what we have really, just by way of reminder, these songs were sung as people were journeying to Jerusalem for the three annual festivals. Okay, well, We're going to kind of deal with that a little bit more in detail here in a moment. But this was a song for believers to sing as they were headed to church, as it were. So this is, you know, Pandora, you know, you're either, you know, what are you doing, Chris Tomlin, or, you know, maybe you're old school and you like, like some indelible grace hymns or some, some different, you know, Fernando Ortega, he's, he's pretty popular around here. But, you know, this is, this is them singing songs on their way to church. So imagine that. And David has been invited, again, David's writing this song. We're going to talk about the context later because it was sung later. But David was writing this song. He's been invited to go to the house of the Lord. There's been this extended invitation, come to church. And his response, verse 1, let's go to the house of the Lord. Exuberant, joyful, excited response. Let's go to church. I'm excited about that. Let's do this. And so here, the song is actually sung, verses 2 down through the rest of the psalm, really like in the parking lot. Again, I'm trying to draw the analogy, if I haven't gone overboard yet, with what they were doing in their context and what we do in our context. So here they are now, they're in the parking lot. They're preparing to go to worship the Lord. And so the gates of Jerusalem is where They are standing, verse 2, our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Gates were, as you might imagine, the, 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 the place of security and protection and safety and refuge. And so here, David and all believers are gathered in that place as they enter church. And so the refuge for the believer is to be within the gates of the city of God. So David begins to describe to us what it would look like for the framework of our lives to be structured by worship. Like for that to be what our guiding, protecting, safe space is, is worship. Now, before I begin to tease out what it might look like for that to be the case in our lives, let me offer to you some alternative frameworks that are very popular in the day that we live in right now. So things that that frame our lives. What is it that that we let dictate who we are, what we do, those kinds of things. One of them, the most popular probably is is work. Right? It's I am what I do. I mean you ask you get a group of men together and they don't know what to talk about and so the very first question that's going to come out of their mouth is what do you do? You know, what, what's your work, right? And that, that begins to, to frame who they are as people. So work is a very, very popular framework to begin to design your life around. So all reference points in your life are work, right? That, that's an option. Uh, and 
prevalent option nowadays is, is in opposition to work is the weekend. So the weekend is now the defining framework for our lives. You know, like, like we work so we can play two days a week, right? We, we enjoy the two days off. We live for the two days off. I mean, the weekend really in American culture is becoming the savior. It's almost like on Friday, Saturday's whispering to, to you, you know, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, right? Like, that's what the weekend is becoming for us. And, it, and, and there's nothing wrong with resting, and there's nothing wrong with weekends. I'm not, not condemning that. But when that has become the framework for your life, the reference point for everything you do so you can have the two days off, it becomes a savior figure. It becomes too much. Or, or even upscaling that beyond the weekend, it's the vacation. So all reference points for our life is when the next vacation is. So it's, it's on your calendar, and you're looking forward to that. Because that is what's going to rescue you. Right? That is what's going to allow you to breathe through the rest of the days, and the rest of the weeks, and the rest of the months, so you can get to that. Vacation becomes the point of reference, the framework. One other one, alternative framework, is is our family. So family is the dictating factor. Now, I love my children. They're they're not in here, so I'll pick on them a little bit. I love my children. I love doing things with my children. But we live in this this radically kid-centric world now where that is the dictating factor for everything we do. It is. And we have to really fight against the grain of that because that, the family becomes the framework for everything we do. So those are some alternatives. And there are various other ones I'm sure you could think of. Those are the ones I came up with. But what would it look like for us to make worship the central reference point, the framework for our lives? You know, that's how God designed you, right? So like, the whole Sabbath principle, um, the idea that the Lord has set one day apart for us to rest, not only from our physical labors, but from our spiritual labors, and come to him and find the deep rest that we need. You know, it's what the New Testament calls the Lord's Day. And so we don't believe, I don't have the conviction that the Sabbath is in full effect like it was in the Old Testament. It's been fully succumbed by the lordship of Jesus, but he has still instituted and hardwired us for the same system, for our life to be oriented around worship. And the worship is on the Lord's Day, what we know as Sunday. And the Lord's Day was always rooted in the power of the resurrection. The early Christians from the beginning of Jesus' resurrection on met on the Lord's Day. It was their point of reference. So here, for you weekend warriors and you vacation lovers, here the Lord has instituted 52 days of mandated rest in your life. Like 52 days, that's not bad. That's almost two months off, really, theoretically. And and hear me when I say this. I know there are occasions when work calls, and I know there are occasions when, when vacation calls. I've, I've missed church. I'm not saying perfect attendance is the standard that the Lord wants from us. Uh, what I am saying is that the Lord has given you an outlet to hinge your entire life around him, and it's discovered in worship. 
to structure your life around this instead of the alternatives, that this would be the hinge on which we find our rest. So what would that require from us? Well, it would require the potential to be mocked by people uh, for going to bed early on Saturdays because you know Sunday's coming. You know, it would, it would potentially require us telling our children no to things, perhaps on Sundays, which I don't like to do, but we do. It would perhaps mean being misunderstood by people because we're not defining our lives on what they're defining their lives on. And so when we turn down the Sunday brunch offer because we're going to church, we're misunderstood and we're potentially mocked. See, worship was structuring David's life. It was structuring these pilgrims' life. They're standing within the gates. They're looking towards the Lord, and they're structuring their lives around worship. But, but the second thing that I think the psalm shows us that they were doing was that it, worship strengthens our unity in verses uh, 3 to 5. Um, I'm a little sad that this is an off-Olympic summer. It is an off-Olympic summer, right? Yeah, I'm not missing on a thing. Okay, so, so Olympics every two years, summer, winter, all that kind of stuff. Okay, this is a really vulnerable day for Adam. One of my favorite... Favorite's a loose term. One of the events that I secretly watch is synchronized swimming. You ever seen synchronized swimming? Come on, it's good. But these people are incredible. Have you seen some of the, I mean, some of the work they do. This, is, uh, this isn't going into second service, so I'm going I'm to cut this now, but I, I've, I've treaded there. So synchronized swimming, in my mind, is the perfect example and model of unity. Like these people are in unison. They are incredibly in sync with each other. While it's hard enough just to be in the water, but doing all of the things that they do in unison, in sync, in unity together is, is profounding in my mind. Note to self, scratch that one. Um, but this is a premier example of unity to me. Synchronized swimming. See, see for, the, for the Old Testament believer, for, for David especially, and we'll find out for the pilgrims that would have been singing this song, the, the perfect picture of unity was Jerusalem. It was the city. In fact, the word means the foundation of peace. And so this idea of the firm foundation of wholeness, the structure of the temple that David, Solomon built, the, the framework of the city, the gates, the walls, all of the intricate details and, and ornate things that went into this bound them together and presented what unity looks like. If you look at verse 3, it describes the city. He describes the city, Jerusalem, built as a city that is, quote, bound firmly together. An alternate definition of that would be it's like tying a magic knot. Now, I don't know what a magic knot is, but I know what a knot that's tied well is. It's unable to be undone. It's intimately twisted together in a way that cannot be separated. And so here, Jerusalem is that for the believer. It's the center source of worship. It's where God's people were ruled by God's word. It's where citizens were united and justice was upheld and peace was unending. It was a picture of the city of God on earth. That's what the Lord 
longed for it to be. It was, it was to be a foretaste of that eternal city that is coming. And so here, the tribes, verse 4, are going up to that place. Now the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel, would have been represented in all different areas, all different varieties and backgrounds, and and they were ascending up to Jerusalem to observe these three feasts. By way of reminder from one of the previous weeks, the three feasts were this, the Feast of Passover, they would have gone, the Feast of uh, Weeks, or also known as Pentecost, Feast of Weeks, and then the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles. And each of these feasts had a bit of a different flavor to them. They were all redemptive in nature, but they were all celebratory in what God had done for his people in history. So they would go up three times annually to this place to unite themselves together in worship. And I think, really, there's kind of two little sub-points here. I think what this text is showing us that we need to understand about worship is, is one of the things is, is that worship is communal. That these tribes were bound together. Now, it was primarily men that would have gone to travel to these feasts. And so men would have represented the families and then the families represented the tribe. And so it, it's, it's really uncertain. Sometimes families would have come, but, but really the representation of men going to just for the... St- pure logistics of it. I cannot imagine traveling with, with my wild boys to, on this journey. So you, you get the logistics of it. So there was this representation model, but there was this deep diversity that was represented, but they were united together in worship. So they came from different places in the region. They had different traditions in their own families, but this brought them together. There's this distinction, yet diversity, of people that are bound together. So why? Why do you you think that that's a necessary component of worship? That we would do this together? In other words, what what I think this is showing us is that worship was never meant to be done alone. Now that's not to say there's no worshipful moments. That's not to say you can't worship God singing in your car or reading your Bible or praying in your closet. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is what God has designed us for is communal worship together. And the reason why is I think that there's something unique offered in this setting. I think that there are people in this tribe that need you. And I think that there are people in this tribe that you need. And so when we gather together, it's that opportunity to come before the Lord in a way that we can be bound together. And so we notice who sits next to us, and we notice who spilt coffee on our shoe in the lobby, and we notice who parked next to us in the parking lot and we're walking in with each other. There's this deep level of diversity but we're also bound together as one people in worship. But the second thing I think it shows us about worship is not just that it's communal, but that it's commanded by God. Um, worship has never been optional. It was, it was actually ordered by God. Now, when we hear that as modern-day 
Americans, that's slightly offensive. In fact, when we hear that God regulates and orders us to do something, we think that that necessarily means that it's lifeless and probably meaningless if it wasn't our idea. See, because you and I have been swimming in the waters of this rugged American individualism our entire lives. And so we've been told that things have to be our idea and our way for them to be authentic and genuine. And that's not the case. And, you know, I I don't think spontaneity and creativity makes anything more genuine necessarily. See, God required his people to worship him. Why? I mean, kind of on one level sounds like he's got an egotistical, kind of narcissistic problem. Right, like, like on the cosmic level that God was like, you will worship me. This is how you'll do it. But contrary, worship is what you were designed to do. And so the question isn't, are you worshiping? The question is, who or what are you worshiping? And so we were made to be worshipers. And the God of the Bible has said, what's best for you, the way you were designed, is to worship me. And so here, we see him decree worship of himself. See, there's this little little category um, that our tradition holds to. Don't want to bore you, but I think it's important. Uh, We call it the regulative principle of worship. That's kind of a mouthful. Don't, Don't write that down. Listen. Here, here's, here's what this principle teaches. That God not only has ordered us to worship him, but he's showed us how he wants us to worship him. And so on any given Sunday, for, for these Israelites, there was certainly a system in place for them to worship. But, but even for us, our worship is pretty ordinary and plain. Like if you're here for the first time, you won't know this, but if you've been here more than twice, you'll know this, that, that our worship services are by and large the same every Sunday. We pray, we sing, we read the Bible, preach the Bible, and we take communion. Like we're pretty ordinary, and that's for a reason. We think that God has designed and purposed worship intentionally. And here's, here's what it does. It unites us. And so, so we might have, we do, we do have various and a variety of backgrounds here. Like we've got people that have come from, you know, more charismatic Pentecostal assemblies of God um, traditions. And then we've got some that have come from very super conservative, um, traditional type of backgrounds. And we've kind of got everything in between. But what we do, when we follow this principle, and the principle is this, that God regulates how we worship, what we're doing is we're, we're uniting. In other words, the people that come from this spectrum and the people that come from this spectrum can now unite because God has made it clear what he wants us to do in our worship of him. See, worship was always decreed for Israel and for us to promote our unity together. And our worship is decreed by God to promote our unity together as a body. So, what's the best way for us to express unity in the church, uh, in, in, especially in a world that's just filled with division? Well, we worship together. 
Like we come together with all of our diversity, with all of our background, with all of our traditions, and we worship together. And so the clappers and the hand pocket tuckers, you know, the hand raisers and, you know, the arm folders, we're in the same rows together worshiping. The paper Bibles that think that that's the only way to read a Bible, and then the iPads that get turned on, we're worshiping together, we're united. Because diversity is best expressed in unity together. And that's what we're trying to do here. Worship strengthens our unity. Lastly, worship shapes our desires. Look at verses 6 down through the end where, where David begins to tell them, to pray for peace. Um, I don't often do this, um, but book recommendation, if you're a reader, I recently read this book uh, while on vacation. Um, uh, It's called You Are What You Love. You Are What You Love by James Smith. Phenomenal book. Um, The summary, the essence of the book, you know, kind of the, the thesis statement for the book is that we as people are desire creatures. And what shapes us the most is our desires and not what we think or do. And so we've kind of been raised in this Western intellectualism where we, where we think it's our thinking that shapes most of us, when in reality, his argument in the book, and I think it was compelling, is, is that we're most shaped by our desires by what we love. And so we are creatures of desire, and our desires can be supremely shaped in worship. That's kind of the whole argument of the book, is that what you do here on a Sunday morning actually can shape and mold the entirety of your life in really profound ways. Um, See, David, he begins to connect with the deepest desires of people who worship the God of the Bible by tapping into two things, their desire for peace and then their desire for prosperity. Um, this, this song was written in, in David's lifetime, obviously. So roughly 1040 to 970 is kind of the dates they give him. So 1000 BC, we'll say he wrote it when he was 40 years old. So 1000 BC, David writes this song. Now this is at the, the kind of the climactic point in Jerusalem. Temples being built, all of the worship of God is being founded. All of these kinds of things are happening but he wrote it in a different setting than when it would have always been sung. So the psalm would have been sung later. And do you know what happened later? Well, later the the temple was destroyed. The gates were rubbish. The city had fallen. And so this was sung oftentimes by these, it was after the exile, the exile of Babylon. So God's people had been kicked out of the city. The song was sung by people who had experienced that. Wasn't it this heightened religious day? It was really when life was down, when the religious spirit was trampled. And so what he's beginning to tap into is what believers, you know, believers were singing this song, quite honestly, when they didn't feel like it. They didn't feel like worshiping God. You ever been there? You just, just don't feel like it. And um, here's, here's the problem. Feelings, they're not bad, but they're also not trustworthy. 
So feelings can be very cruel and unpredictable and, and, and unmanageable. And so for us to dictate the way we worship God based on our emotions and feelings is a very dangerous thing to do. Let me, let me just really land this really low. So, so what do you do when you don't feel like going to church is really the question that I think David's after when he's saying pray for peace, peace be within the walls, you know, peace be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. This, these are people that are down, that are singing this song. What do you do when you don't feel like coming to church? Well, the really simple answer, and I, and I don't want to be real just casual and nonchalant about it, but you just go to church anyway. We sing, we pray, we listen, we respond, we commune with God and with each other, and we don't base our experience on our emotions because they're unpredictable. See, that's what these people would have been going through. A situation where peace was not their circumstance, where prosperity was not their experience, yet they went to the house of the Lord. Have you ever lost your sense of joy and awe in worship? Maybe that's where you are today. Has life derailed you to the point where you are exhausted? You are filled with doubt? Well, good news, friends. Jesus actually encountered someone just like you. He encountered a woman at a well in John chapter 4. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to summarize that, and I'm going to close with this today. But this woman at the well lived in Samaria, which was a despised, kind of at odds people with the people of Jerusalem. And here comes Jesus, this Jewish rabbi, up to Samaria where he would not have normally been interacting with people, much less a woman. And he meets with this woman in the middle of a day who's fetching water. She's fetching water in the middle of the day because her life is filled with shame and guilt over her sexual promiscuity that her life has been really consumed with. So here's this woman who's out of sorts with her religious life, so to speak. And Jesus meets with this woman. And at the front end of their conversation, they're talking about living water. They're talking about him giving her living water that will ultimately satisfy her. And then she moves towards religion. She moves towards worship, and she says this. She says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And then Jesus said this, because that was the big debate, is where does true worship happen? And then listen to what Jesus said. He said, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. See, what he was showing this lady and what he's showing us today is that worship is no longer located in a place, but it's now located in a person. See, Jesus came to fulfill everything these psalms of ascent were pointing to. He became the fulfillment of the feast of the Passover. He was the Lamb of God who was slain for God's people. 
He became the fulfillment of the Feast of Pentecost, where they would celebrate God's sustaining provision for them. Jesus has satisfied and provided everything you will ever need to go to God. And then he satisfied the Feast of the Tabernacles. The the path to God is secure. We're no longer in limbo. We're no longer a mobile people who have no tabernacle and no temple. We have assurance in the finished work of Jesus who said, it's finished. See, brothers and sisters in Jesus, the Father is seeking true worshipers. Not in a building, but in a people who are trusting in the person and work of his son, Jesus. Oh, that we would be those people, people who worship him in spirit and truth. Let's ask God to to do that work in us today. Father, we, again, thank you for your word. We thank you for the words of David that were penned in hardship. Um, For many were sung in hardship. Lord, David's life was certainly um, no, you know, perfected garden. He He was rough and he was messy. And so are we, Lord. So help us now to be those people that you're seeking, people who worship you in spirit and in truth, Lord. Would you do that? Would you help us in that endeavor? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.